Well, as we mentioned earlier this week, uh, the Bach and Honline families uh, suffered a uh, terrible loss uh, last Friday, actually, just before Shabbos, with the passing of Sender Bach. And um, I, uh, many people, of course, in this audience know the Bach family, and many people know the Honline family, and uh, both of them uh, in this um, uh, tragedy this week. And the Malcolm, uh, and of course, Senderbach was Malcolm's son-in-law, just so everyone has the perspective here. And Malcolm, um, uh, we were not sure if we would do the weekly update this morning, but uh, we uh, we spoke, and uh, we are going to analyze the events of the week. But first, of course, we will extend condolences and get a word from Malcolm about the circumstances. Um, Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Malcolm, on behalf of all of us, and I know that all our listeners join me in saying this, our condolences to you and the entire uh, Bach and Honline families from all of us here at JM and the AM. Thank you, and I thank so many people who have not only come, but called or wrote, and um, those who knew Sender directly or knew Meira who has been simply amazing. He he was sick for more than two years in a very difficult battle that he fought courageously with a lot of support from his family, and uh, especially his wife and his uh, family, members of his family on both sides, brothers, sisters, sister-in-laws, brothers-in-law. But unfortunately, the the ultimate decision uh, was as it was, and... Um, he has four wonderful children uh, that uh, he and Mira have uh, raised from the ages 5 to 15. And I'm sure they will carry on in uh, the way that he would have wanted, uh, guided by their mother and uh, families. And, you know, you have to just accept the decisions. And sometimes with all the prayers, the answer is no. In this case, it was. He was just turned 40 years old. He was a partner a major law firm, and we learned many things about him that we didn't know until the funeral about accomplishments and things that he did very quietly. And uh, both he and Mira were extremely charitable, very quietly, um, and set a tremendous example for their kids, uh, who I no doubt will carry on. Well, our heart goes out, of course, the entire family, and uh, many people, of course, uh, have expressed condolences and uh, extend their wishes. You mentioned something to me on a broader scale when I saw you earlier in the week, and I think it's such an important lesson. Um, you watched as uh, a remarkable segment of a remarkable community. Uh, you mentioned family, of course, and uh, who would expect otherwise from families like yours. Uh, but members of the community, friends, and, and those who just stepped up and were there for the family, as you described it, to a very, very long battle. And I think that uh, there are other communities and other segments of our worldwide Jewish community that always need to be reminded how important it is for people to step up and help out when necessary. You're absolutely right, and I was uh, negligent uh, not to mention it, it, it is the most amazing example I've seen of community, of people caring for one another, both throughout this period and especially during this week. Uh, the friends here, the people in the Teaneck community, are it's simply remarkable. And the level of devotion and care, the love for Sender and Meira and their children, people organizing young kids from the schools, uh, classmates of, uh, of the children, scheduled, brought in carpools so the children wouldn't be alone during the day. The, of 
course, supplying the food and taking care of, uh, of everything in, in ways you can't imagine to be here at midnight. Often there were late-night runs to the hospital or something, and people had to step in or just come over and to help get through these uh, the, the difficult days. It, it is a true lesson to us, and, and I certainly am tremendously inspired by what I have seen. It's really hard to describe it. it it's so remarkable, and the friends are as important as family at a time like this. Yeah, and again, just to emphasize, you're not just talking about this week. You're talking about a years-long process and people really stepping up and being there, and we should all... Uh, hopefully, it'll improve all of us. We see this type of example, and uh, we'll all keep and in I mind. I also want to mention the rebbies and teachers from Yavna, TABC, Yeshiva, North Jersey, where the kids go to school. I mean, they're here all the time, and they're, the way they approach the children, how they've helped them uh, through this period is, is truly amazing. Uh, I hope it could be exemplified by schools around the country and around the world, yeshivas, to have people of such sensitivity, the Gemara Rebbe's who come at midnight and talk to kids and counselors coming, everything. It's just incredible. Really amazing. Kudos to all of them in Kolak Avod, to everybody collectively. Uh, we remember Sender Bach and uh, mourn his passing, and may his memory be a blessing, which no doubt it will be uh, for everybody. Uh, Malcolm Holmline is with us, and we will switch gears and get into the events of this week and discuss what we do on a weekly basis here at JMN, which is, of course, What's going on in this world of ours? Malcolm, there is a, a new flotilla, the latest attempt to um, deliver supplies. In this case, they're claiming that they're carrying solar panels and medical supplies for Gaza residents. The flotilla does include an Arab member of Knesset, which is angering many people in Israel. I don't think just the Israeli Knesset members, but I would imagine many people in the state of Israel in general. What's the latest on this flotilla? Well, this is another one in the continuation of the series because they saw how much publicity they got last time and how the world reacted when Israel blocked uh, the Turkish ships, uh, the Mavi Mamara, uh, which still continues to reverberate. And the U.N. actions, I think, feed this uh, uh, idea that they can put Israel continuously on the defensive, even though the courts ruled that what Israel did was not only legal but necessary, it was in compliance with an international sanction and uh, that uh, it's a defensive blockade to prevent the import of weapons. As you know, there's a long history of that. So on a legal grounds, Israel has every right to do it. Israel does not blockade Gaza. As you know, there are between 800 and 1,000 trucks a day going into Gaza with supplies, so there's no shortage in terms of medicines, etc. The problem is that Hamas takes stuff, especially cement and building materials that were sent for 83,000 families, and they uh, either buy it or just take it as it comes across the border to use for tunnels and to use for their purposes. They also uh, try to sell a lot of this stuff. There's a black market. Uh, as you know, Egypt has blocked its side, uh, the access routes, and uh, gave them temporary relief every once in a while, but there's no you don't see any flotillas going to Egypt. So this is really a propaganda ploy. It's 
not based upon a humanitarian need. At what point does Israel have authority? Do they have to enter Israeli uh, waters? Like, at what point can Israel step in? Because I think last time one of the problems was it happened so close to shore. Is that is that correct or not? Well, that's that is true. That there is an issue there about where they can do it. You know, in it, it, the question is doing it in international waters, or do you wait till they're actually in Gaza territorial waters or Israeli territorial waters? Mm. And but but we have the right to intercept as America does ships on the high seas, but ships going to let's say Yemen are being intercepted or redirected uh, far off the coast of Yemen because you don't want them to get there where they can slip into some place and offload uh, their their um, uh, cargo and they will not be subjected to inspection in this ship. It's a fishing vessel that went through the waters of Spain, Portugal, Germany, all over where it could have been stomped and wasn't. Um, Israel cannot allow the breach to take place. They do say that if they want to dock at any of the ports and uh, offload the stuff onto trucks where it can be inspected, that they will allow it to go into Gaza. Right. So it's clearly not because they want this stuff to get in. They want to use this as a as a lever against and a propaganda ploy against Israel. When do you think it'll all come to a head? Sunday, Monday, what's the estimate? It, it depends, and it depends on when Israel decides to, to intercept. And it also will depend upon what, what their intentions are. Are they going to fight? Are they going to try to create a scene, uh, which they can then film, you know, try to show Israeli soldiers in a negative light, as they did last time, and we found out that a lot of it just was simply staged and untrue. Um, that uh, that we could expect it in the next couple of days. Uh, and it's funny. The first thing you said was publicity. And if and if they saw just how incredible their publicity was the first time around, why wouldn't they try this again? And frankly, because because of the first one, I can only imagine how much media is going to be paying attention to this. It, it could end up being a, comp- a a real vicious cycle of these types of episodes because each and every time there's more and more publicity being mounted for them. And it's only because the media wants to see violence. And if there is none, they will pay very little attention to it uh, long term. If there is, then, of course, the Palestinian propaganda machine, aided and abetted by NGOs and non-governmental organizations, funded by Europe, and we see more and more of the reports about the role that these NGOs, uh, often being funded by Holland or Germany or other countries, uh, to, to do supposedly human rights advocacy, things like that, and in fact are using their money and together with some NGOs in Israel, as we saw in, in the Gaza report, how many times places like B'Tselem and uh, uh, other organizations were cited, I think this B'Tselem alone was cited 69 times wow. in, the, uh, in the report, and other organizations, Amnesty International, over 50 times. And they target simply Israel. It's not because they're even-handed and going after the others. Hamas, in that report, because they, they they just did it on the basis of hearsay. They had no investigation of Hamas's activities, and it, it's relegated to to a secondary position. Of course, Israel is the main focus of the report, uh, even though they do say that both sides could be guilty of war crimes as if there's some equivalency between what happened on both sides of the border, who fired the rockets, who started it, who fired at civilian populations, who tried to avoid civilian populations, who, who used people as human shields, used UN uh, organizational headquarters and facilities to store weapons and to draw fire on them. 
and yet it's all ignored. And the same thing is true with the flotilla. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is the fault of Hamas and the, the kleptocracy that exists there. Not because Israel doesn't allow goods in. You just have to go any day to the south, and, and you can see the trucks line up and go through, the, and they're building additional facilities to accommodate many more uh, trucks to be able to go through and, and deliver goods to uh, the people in Gaza. Uh, by the way, uh, in terms of the UN and the Security Council not hearing or not having a discussion regarding the uh, the Gaza war report, is that a formal uh, U.S. veto, or is that just a you know a, a a right that the United States has not to put something on the table? How does that work officially? Well, this time we're trying. They're trying to dissuade uh, the Palestinians and the uh, from bringing the the report to the Security Council. They advised them that it was a bad move. Ah, so them. they're they're leveraging it essentially. Right now, leveraging it. Right. They ultimately, they don't want to exercise a veto, right. but if necessary, I think on this one they will. The the other issue that the Palestinians are going to need international criminal court uh, against Israel using the UN Human Rights uh, Report. That's what I was going to ask you. If that's basically their evidence, is they just take the UN report and bring it with them? Absolutely. And again, because it doesn't focus on their activities, it doesn't talk right. about what they do. Uh, and the UN Human Rights Council warned them that they could be subject to to these war crime charges also. And U.S. and others have advised them not to do it, but he he gets away with it. He just does what he wants and can um, present anything he wants, despite the fact that everybody knows it's all counterproductive and, again, concocted, uh, often based upon hearsay or, or reports that have no evidentiary basis. And we saw the reports of the former chiefs of staff and other generals, American generals, who went there and studied these issues, who came out with glowing reports about how Israel conducted itself and the restraint that it demonstrated. Yeah, well, but nobody seems to pay attention to that. Uh, is this never-ending, as uh, just similar to our other uh, story we already spoke about with the publicity, as long as there's an interest in in um, keeping Israel in the headlines in this regard, they'll just keep bringing these reports and keep bringing up this topic to the ICC. Is, is it never-ending, or will there finally be at some point a conclusion to all this? Well, I'm sure at some point there will be a conclusion, but I don't know what it will be. That uh, it, it serves their purpose. Look, this is the way Abbas avoids responsibility. He does nothing inside the territory. He does nothing for the people, which is why you're seeing increasing uh, unrest and activity in, in the uh, in the West Bank and other areas, and he can't do anything with Hamas. He's not allowed to go to Gaza, so he's talking now about excluding Hamas from the next government or any future government and breaking the uh, so-called unity government that he has with them. It's a sham. And we saw now that uh, this week that they went after Fayyad, you know, the former uh, prime minister who was known and supported by the U.S. because he tried to clean up the act, and now they're charging him with money laundering, and uh, they, they froze his bank accounts uh, because, you know, he's a potential challenger to, to Abbas, and they want to eliminate any challengers. So they they now targeted him for, for this kind of harassment persecution, and you, you don't hear a peep. Nobody says anything about it. So this is how Abbas stays in power. He creates new targets. He keeps the focus. You know, they named uh, a sports team for terrorists again this week. They continue all these offensive acts and they get away with it. You know, and here, you know, the president and others getting up and saying how this is outrageous. You can't do this, you know, as opposed to anything that 
an Israeli leader or minister says something right away, there's, there's a ton of criticism coming from all sorts of sources. And this it's the only feeds them the, the idea that they don't have to negotiate, and they're trying to create the pressure cooker in the U.N., at the ICC, in all these places, to try and isolate Israel, demonize Israel, pushing the boycott, by the way, more and more, right. uh, the BDS movement. A lot of it emanates from uh, the Palestinian territories. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmdm.org. The Vatican signed its first treaty with the quote-unquote state of Palestine today, um, now, last time that this happened, where there was a reference to the state of Palestine or a treaty with them, you and other Jewish leaders sort of downplayed it, that it wasn't really the first time the Vatican had acknowledged them, etc., etc. Anything new, or, or do you think any differently because of the formality that occurred today? Again, it wasn't that we downplayed the significance of it. We, we just said it wasn't the first time, because the media started saying, well, this is the first time they ever recognized right. it. We said it's not the first time. And it's unfortunate any time they do it and, and engaging them without any uh, conditions, without any uh, using the opportunity to leverage uh, whatever deals and, and the Vatican's you know, treaties are of, of limited impact. Uh, because it's of limited capacity in terms of of uh, what it can offer, but it it is an, an, on a psychological basis, on a political basis, very significant. Um, is it true or not that Tehran will get high tech reactors as part of their nuclear deal? This is still uh, unclear about what what is a rumor and what, what is true fiction and what is truth about what they're being offered. Uh, there were reports that the United States w- w- or the P5 plus 1 would provide uh, more sophisticated and highly technical uh, advances, equipment uh, that would be monitored. But r- I do not see it yet in the deal. We won't know much until this weekend when Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, the pro- Secretary of State Kerry, and uh, Fabus of France and others will come to the talks in Vienna that have been going on five days a week. But People don't know that the, uh, you know, that the detailed negotiations and the, the attempt to try and reach the deadline by uh, June 30th, which I'm not sure will, will hold, <coughs> there will be an attempt to try and reach it because if it goes past July 10th, then the Congress, instead of getting 30 days to review whatever the deal is, gets 60 days and holds it up, and the. Um, uh, the administration certainly would like to see it be fast-tracked if there is, in fact, a deal. We see the Khomeini still denies the uh, uh, ability, the, the willingness to allow inspectors into military sites, which is very important because they will just hide everything there, and to, to interview the uh, inspectors, uh, the, the inspectors to interview uh, nuclear scientists. And more importantly, we see the refusal even to open up certain facilities. The most important development was this in this week, I think, was the letter signed by twenty-five, thirty high-ranking American officials, but five of them former Obama assistants, uh, people who worked in the administration, high-level people like Dennis Ross, Bob Einhorn, um, and then they were joined by people like uh, Jim Wolsey, former head of the CIA, uh, deputy chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, really significant people 
so the statement had to be one that could get all of them to sign on, but it is very significant, and it lays out the areas, and I, I suggest everybody uh, read it. It was written up in the papers as well, uh, in the dailyalert.org, of course, has the, the full text and things that people can read. But it's very significant because they talk about the past, the, the possible military dimensions or past military dimensions, the PMDs as they're known, and and they say that you can't give sanctions relief until we know what are the bases because these are the timelines. How can IA inspectors to be able to do it effectively in a timely way to take samples, to interview scientists, to inspect sites? Um, this is required to investigate their past and any ongoing nuclear weaponization. Right now, we don't know. The, the, the inspectors of the IA, they talked about monitoring and verification and compliance with the agreement. We said anywhere, anytime, and now we see it's not anywhere, anytime in the country. The question of advanced centrifuges, which I know makes people's you know eyes roll when we talk about these as seemingly technical issues. They are not. It has to do with what, how fast they will be able to break out. You don't. You lose the one year the president talks about, and what are the consequences of violations? What 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 will Iran will do? This the idea of snapback. I think has been largely debunked, and then of course the issue of sanctions relief. They say they want it right away. Everything. What is going to be the the process? Because once you suspend it, it's very hard. You can't, you know, just reimpose them, and the and the non-nuclear uh, sanctions like for terrorism, et cetera, have to remain intact. And even if we have to remember that even if Congress decides not to lift the sanctions that they were imposed by Congress, if they review the agreement, the parties can still go to the UN and remove the, san- the original sanctions which were imposed, which will give the Europeans and others a green light to be able to go in and, and do what they want. And if people feel that this is too much detail for them about this, they understand how significant what, what the content of this agreement will be for the future of the region, the future of America, the future of Israel, because all of those are targets for this uh, effort. And one of the issues that's raised there is that it has nothing to do, and there's no mention of not only the weaponization of ballistic missiles, but no mention of their terrorism support, right. no mention of their aggressive activities with Hamas, with Hezbollah, with Ye- in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria. None of that is even covered in this agreement. But even but speaking about not being mentioned, it's somewhere in the letter it says the United States must itself articulate the serious consequences Iran will face if there's a violation. I mean, this is something that's never been expressed. There has never been a direct discussion or certainly a public policy that the United States has offered to tell Iran and the world what's going to happen if they do violate this agreement. Absolutely. As I mentioned, that the the question of the sanctions and what and and how they can be imposed, because we know that once the door is open, we, there are hundreds of European businessmen, others all waiting to jump in. There's the question of the supposedly, you know, they call it the sign-up bonus about the tens of billions of dollars that are sitting in frozen accounts that could be lifted. And the president talked about amount up to 150 billion dollars. Uh, there could be immediate relief of 30, 40, 50 billion. So they don't care about the sanctions. They won't care about compliance because that money, think of what they're doing now in supporting terrorism, supporting Assad, supporting uh, militia groups, uh, et cetera. What will they do if they finally have this uh, influx of, right. of tens of billions of dollars 
to escalate these activities. So it looks like there'll be another delay, and 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 it's bad for both sides. It's bad for the sides that thinks it's not strong enough, and it's bad for the side that wants to see a deal already. It, it, well, actually, the Israelis feel that a delay is better because they feel that the pressure of a timeline is driving the process, and that therefore they will make a bad deal because they think that this is essential to to. Um, uh, uh, in, in order to, to get any deal, that the longer it drags on, the, uh, many of the experts hope that the, the Iranians won't feel that they have us over a barrel by trying to get to this deadline. Uh, and uh, it's better to operate now under the JPOA, the, the, the previous agreement, the JPOA, than to rush into a bad deal that would be even worse. Well, I'm sure you've had encounters with Secretary Kerry. Is there a sense of urgency on his part or not? Well, he, he right, he's, you know, he was out of it for a, a while because of the operation, but kept intact. I, know, I do think that there's a very strong sense of urgency. I told you that one of the reasons is this congressional calendar and the impact on the, the agreement that was signed, if you remember, a couple a month ago, right. uh, that enables them to have the review, but the review process doubles if they don't have a deal by July 10th because of the congressional recess. So there are, are reasons why they would want to, and they know that the opposition to it is growing every day. You would not have had a statement like this against the deal, I think, a year ago. But it's a growing uh, recognition on the part of top experts on a bipartisan level, left to right, Republican and Democrat, saying this deal, what we're hearing and what we see is in the works is a bad deal. Right. You know, it's funny. Usually, usually the deal, when we're talking about Washington, is referring to the uh, Israelis and the Palestinians. That, that that deal has sort of been put on the back burner by everybody because it's a, the, this deal is now the deal that everyone's talking about and that everybody wants to see go through. Well, I, there's also, an, uh, it's important, just one point, that there are reports that the French are withdrawing their resolution, their intended resolution at the United Nations because... They say, you know, we went to Israel, they told us, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. But the Palestinians told them they don't want it. And they're saying if both sides don't want it, what are we going to do with it? Mm-hmm. So the, the whole idea of the Palestinians uh, are repeatedly, they have no interest in any kind of negotiations, any kind of agreement. And I think everybody increasingly is coming to that conclusion. So they want to, as the president said, he wants to create the preconditions, the predicates for negotiations, knowing that it's not going to happen in the remaining time of his tenure, of his presidency. But, I mean, they took it off the agenda by their activities. We've been down this road before, no? A couple hundred times. (laughs) Um, What do you think when you hear Ehud Barak say we could defeat ISIS in two days? And shouldn't the reaction be, so why hasn't someone just authorized it and gone in and done it already? Uh, Yeah, sometimes um, people not careful with their words and... You know, hyperbole is the rule of the day. But, uh, you know, the, the fact is that ISIS could have been defeated easily. And we talked about it when it was very small, if you remember. Right. When it was a few hundred, a few thousand, before it became tens of thousands, and a growing infrastructure. And, and look at the the way that they spread now, even into Gaza, and, and fighting Hamas. And while they're much smaller, you see Hamas now linking up with Egypt, and Saudi Arabia reportedly, uh, and in fact providing, according to some reports, and again, not verified, that they provided intelligence information to Israel through that those, these channels, because they see themselves being challenged now by uh, this emerging ISIS in Jerusalem. 
and as they call themselves, but they also are threatening people. Uh, they threaten the Christians in Jerusalem, living in Jerusalem this week. I mean, these are so brutal, and, uh, and supposedly there was a beheading in France this morning and, right. and a terrorist attack. Uh, so in Europe, you see the rise of these right-wing parties in Denmark. Uh, just this week in the election there, they, they uh, gained a significant victory, as there is a backlash against uh, what is going on in Europe. And you've seen the drownings that ISIS is taking credit for, right? Those uh, brutal uh, murder. If, if I, I don't know what to, I don't know, I don't know what's true or what's not with right. these images on the internet. You have no idea. But the, my point being that the beheadings we know are a fact, right. and, and there's so many brutal murders that have been. And it, it is, and, and then you know, of course, whatever the situation is with these drownings, I reacted the same way. I mean, it, it, what is it going to take for leaders of the free world to express real outrage and to demonstrate a real commitment to defeat this enemy? I mean. It, if, if they don't react after seeing these images and hearing these stories and seeing these murders, I don't know what it's going to take to get the Western world to really act and act strongly. It's it's an excellent question, and it's a question that we've wrestled with for many decades, as you know, since the Shoah, where we saw the same thing and before. But, you know, this week, 43 Yazidi women were the minority in Iraq that we have tried to help uh, were sold as sex slaves to, to terrorists. And... It's not something they hide. They advertise it. They want the world to know the brutality of what they do. They want to instill fear in every group that when they come into a, a city, the armies run away, not only because they, they don't want to fight, but because they're so afraid of being ending up on the end of a stick. And they behead people constantly and around the whole region. And there's nothing. There's no reaction. And this becomes then a commonplace and accepted practice. And young people get attracted to this movement by the more beheadings, the more attraction. It's uh, it's unbelievable. And the, and the types of people with such varied backgrounds, these young kids, every every background imaginable are being attracted to this kind of stuff. So the Al-Qaeda spokesman who was killed this week was an American. Right. I mean, it, you're right. It's, it's, and it's not, and there are people who are converting. It's not just Muslims, people who are originally Muslim, but people who convert. Or you see the Somalians from from the Midwest being attracted by the hundreds to 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 these movements, and the numbers are growing everywhere in the world, and including the United States. If, as we said last week, that Jewish unity is paramount to uh, defeat the enemy, and and anybody who heard it knows what I meant. Um, are we going to see a, uh, an attempt by President Rivlin to uh, make up with the Jewish agency leadership? Do you think this feud's going to last a while, or it should be taken care of soon enough? No, I think it'll be it'll be addressed. Both sides don't are not people who are looking for divisiveness. It's uh, at a time like this, especially we we can't afford to waste energy fighting one another with internal differences, although they will always exist. But there has to be a sense of unity. The government has to really be able to act with a dispatch to face the, the challenges. I must say that on Harazazim, it seems that they are going to be moving on about the Mount of Olives issues, but the uh, security issues in the country are, are very severe. You saw, again, a young man on West Bank was killed in Yehudun uh, Shomron, and the... the um, um, the number of those driving attacks using cars, using other means, uh, has increased, and they're going to do it until there's really a unified approach. But I saw that Bougie Herzog, for instance, came out this week and said the head leader of the Labor Party mm -hmm. of the um, opposition, right. 
said that there, there is no difference at all with Netanyahu over Iran, and that um, and he has expressed a very, I think he called it extreme worry about the the deal. And said there's no daylight between him and Netanyahu on this issue. Yeah, I think, and, I think it was a very positive thing. I think he was even criticized for making that point during the campaign very often. That they thought right. they thought it was a bad strategy to try to defeat Netanyahu to keep emphasizing how they agree on that. But you're right that in the big picture, it's a very important statement. By the way, one of our listeners on the app claims that there's a study this week that showed 24, and you're always up in the polls and stuff, so you probably saw it. A new study showed 24% of American Muslims support violence. So he asks, what are the implications for us? The implications are that there's got to be greater effort to monitor what is taught in the schools, what kind of activities are, are going on. It is one of the complaints you hear from law enforcement security that they are more and more limited in their ability. You saw the president hosted an iftar dinner, but uh, two people at his table <coughs> at the White House, two of those who are seated at his table are people who are known to have expressed opinions that Israel shouldn't exist or that Israel's cancer. Two of the uh, Muslim uh, representatives who are there, that sends a bad message. I mean, we should, it's fine to have the Iftar dinner, but you should be extolling the moderates and the people who, who, who you know, are, are, are working against violence and not those who seem to be willing to express uh, such extremist views. And it, it has to be consistent throughout. First, that Muslim leaders leaders have to express themselves, but when they raise their voices, they're hardly heard because it doesn't fit what the media is interested in. And there has to be, law enforcement has to be given the powers and ability and not constantly restricted. When it comes to terrorism, I think the rules have to be different because the nature of the enemy and their activities are different. It's not, you know, standard criminal activity that police uh, are able to to use existing laws to fight. Finally, could you explain to us the significance, if there is importance and significance, that now Egypt again has an ambassador to Israel? Listen, I think that it's it's uh, really significant because the symbolism that this carries. But it must have been done after testing the waters in Egypt, where, as you know, there is extreme hostility despite the government's good relations with Israel. Uh, but this is the result of many years of uh, negative publicity. There is a, a television program in Egypt being produced which portrays Jews for the first time in decades, if not longer, in a positive light. Wow. Uh, I think that there is an attempt here to, to lower the tension, and CC certainly is cooperating, uh, and, I, and will continue as long as uh, it serves Egypt's interests and the regional interests, and, and it's the common enemies that certainly brought them together, but the return of an ambassador sends a very significant message and can help um, for, let's say, other countries in the region to be able to have more contact with uh, Israel. And uh, the, Jordan, which has an ambassador in Israel, because Egypt withdrew it, put pressure on him, uh, Jordan, to and the king to withdraw his ambassador. Right. This changes, uh, I think, uh, certainly the climate uh, to a degree that could have other ramifications. Mm. And I hope that means positive ones. Positive. positive yeah. Yeah. I read an article, I don't know if it was today, I think it was this morning, about uh, the Israeli relationship with Jordan, that it's pretty, it's pretty much on solid ground at this point. Listen, you... Israel does a great deal for Jordan. Jordan is very important to Israel, the stability of the government, the ability of the government to continue to function. 
all are very important, and uh, we should not take it for granted in this way. Israel has helped Jordan a great deal, and uh, in fact, a new institute opened this week in Jordan that focuses on uh, on Israel and understanding Israel. I don't know if Israelis understand it, so maybe they can guide them, but it's, uh, you know, there are so many interesting developments happening in the region. Nobody should think that these are permanent changes, because in the Middle East, nothing is permanent, but they are significant and could potentially bode well. Uh, Malcolm, we should always share uh, many happy occasions together. Uh, this entire audience joins me in extending condolences to your family, to the Bach family, and we should again only celebrate wonderful things uh, together, all of us. Amen. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Uh, Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. And um, we do the weekly update Friday, 7.40 in the morning right here at JM in the AM. Special welcome to those tuned in on the NSN app around the world. We mentioned the early part of the conversation about the passing of Sender Bach, Malcolm's uh, son-in-law. And uh, our, our uh, condolences, of course, to his wife and children, uh, uh, parents, in-laws, the entire family, the entire extended family. Uh, I go way back with the Homeline family. I go even further back with the Bach family. And I always say when it comes to a simcha, it's more meaningful when uh, it's even more meaningful when you know both sides. In this case, when it comes to a tragedy, it is uh, it is um, even more meaningful in a way, so to speak, uh, when you go way back with uh, with everybody who's affected uh, in a direct manner. So again, our condolences uh, to everybody.